So tonight we are in Acts chapter 8 as we continue uh, with the journey of the early church and the spread of the gospel. And uh, last week we spent a lot of time uh, in Acts 7, of course, because we're trying to do every chapter. And so it was, we had already talked about Stephen, the proto-martyr and deacon, um, and then we basically looked at his sermon that he gives in response to all of the, um, how shall I say this, conflict that he is receiving because he's preaching about Jesus Christ. And he gives a long, uh, the longest sermon in uh, the book of Acts. And we talked about the particularities of it. The uh, website now, com has... Uh, the video and audio uploaded. So if you missed that, you can go back uh, and you can then spend some time in the book of Daniel as well, because we read little bits of Daniel uh, as Stephen has his vision there in Acts 7, uh, with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, uh, and then he's stoned and forgives them in a very Christ-like manner. So, of course, he is greatly revered within the church. Uh, his... Um, Day, his feast day being commemorated uh, soon after Christmas in December. Tonight, we are going to be talking about a few other individuals, at least one of the other deacons that we, um, that group that was ordained, at least um, John Chrysostom argues, I'm sure the tradition of the church would argue that Philip is one of the deacons that was ordained uh, there earlier in Acts 6. Um, but before we begin, let's go ahead and uh, start with prayer, and then we will start reading Acts 8. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a master who loves mankind, illumine our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your gospel. And still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies of Christ your God. And to you, we give glory with your eternal Father and our holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Acts 8, we saw right at the end of Acts 7, Saul appear. And, of course, Luke is, Luke, the author of Acts, is... Um, does a good job of shading people in, kind of foreshadowing or bringing people in. And so Saul, as we know, of course, on this side of things is Paul. But Saul Paul, Saul Paul has shown up and he is creating chaos. Who would like to uh, begin reading? Oh, Erica's okay. on it. There you go, Erica. Uh, read, I guess, the first three verses. Sure. And Saul was consenting to his death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Go ahead and read the next four verses, too. Sure. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs which he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So we already gather from Acts 8 verse 1 uh, that when this was written, they didn't break all this down into uh, chapters and verses because it's a very odd uh, 8 1, the very first sentence, and Saul is consenting to his death. So if you just picked up chapter 8, you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, and it's always helpful. I know there's even been uh, there's a big Kickstarter a few years ago where they were wanting to just do the Bible as kind of reading it like you would any other uh, novel or text uh, without doing all of these. We get so used to like chapters and breaking down the text and thinking in those units rather than the actual how the text flows. So uh, obviously we need to read seven and eight together, but sometimes it's good to just sit down with the text of the Bible without thinking in the units that are prescribed or even the titles or the head the headings that are prescribed because it's helpful but then it can also set our minds up to get stuck in ruts instead of being able to just in, engage with the text um we've seen throughout acts uh issues just like we saw of course in the ministry of christ and the apostles there was always conflict going on uh christ um, while he is the Prince of Peace, he seemed to always bring with him uh, conflict. There's always a hubbub going on around him. And the early church was no different, mostly because uh, the early church's gospel would have undercut and required change. And, well, a lot of people don't like change that much. And this required uh, out of them uh, as they're losing ground, as you have, especially Stephen, uh, when he has a very forceful sermon where he basically turns and tells them, you know, at the end, you guys are just like your fathers who rejected all the prophets anyways. So <laughs> uh, no wonder we're at this point. Uh, and so we have Saul, but we have, I think we have an uptick here with Saul and what happens in Acts 8 is now it's not just a kind of like, we're just going to Mm, tell the Christians, please just shut up and go away. Now there's a great persecution. Now they've, they've realized these Christians aren't just going to quietly do their own thing. Uh, this is going to be an issue. So now there, a persecution uh, rises up. And in some ways, uh, there's almost kind of a providence in this because the early church, at least at this point seems to be very Jerusalem centric. Um, and it's with the scattering, not only from Pentecost that people who would have converted would have then gone back to their lands, but now you have the uh, kind of, and you'll see now acts moving away from Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, very obvious, especially in the fact of where Philip ends up preaching. Uh, they, they're moving outside uh, of we have somebody else coming, uh, out of Jerusalem into Samaria, and then even encountering uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. So we have this kind of blip of um, someplace extremely far away from Jerusalem in that world. 
So, um, were there any aspects of these first few um, verses that Erica read that anyone had any questions about or observations? I've often wondered why it is that the apostles were the ones who were not scattered. Yeah, it's interesting that there seems to be a general kind of scattering of the whole church. Um, and not just kind of the apostles, but I mean, they had throngs about them now. I mean, there, were, there was a concentrated group there, and now they are spread throughout, well, Judea and Samaria. You know, also um, underlines how Acts progresses. The beginning, it's very clear that we need an apostle to replace Judas, so we need this particular ministry needs to be fulfilled. Uh, and then, but I mean, this is from the very beginning of the book of Acts, and even from the end of Gospel of Luke, that the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth. So you need, 12 apostles is not, are not going to accomplish all of the apostolic work necessary <laughs> to, you know, it's going to be, apostles and then as we see in six right now we need to add deacons because this 12 can't accomplish all the ministry which reminds me of moses uh saying you know i need some help <laughs> i need some wise men uh because i can't handle the caseload <laughs> i can't be the judge for all the things that israel needs so uh they basically set up uh judges and folks to help so um uh, Philip, we now encounter Philip, and with Philip, uh, we have uh, John Chrysostom, as I said earlier, uh, counts him as one of the deacons that had been ordained with Stephen. So even, you know, we were we started off with Peter and the apostles, and then we have Stephen, and now we have another deacon, Philip, uh, and we know that we're heading towards Paul, who's not even in the original 12. So we're kind of moving consistently outside of that Jerusalem and the 12 outwards. Uh, and, but this continues the same that we saw in the ministry of Jesus and in the early church uh, at the very beginning when it's about, not about the 12, but there's a, a centralization of the 12 in Jerusalem. That in verse 7, it's the, the same signs are occurring even as the kingdom grows out. Unclean spirits coming out of the possessed, crying with loud voices, and the paralyzed and lame are being healed. So the proclamation of Christ, wherever it goes, uh, brings good news, but also seems to bring, um, well, a challenge to whatever the status quo is in whatever city that it goes to. Any other questions about the first eight verses or observations or... So uh, let's talk about Simon. Who would like to read 9 through 24? How about Jim Tilson? Uh-oh. Oh, oh. Was Glenn about to say go for it? <laughs> yeah, he was. Michelle was volunteering me. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn, go ahead. 9 through 24. Okay. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the nation of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is that power of God, which is called great. And they gave heed to him because of a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God through money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are, all, you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said come upon me. This is a fascinating section. Simon, the the magician, the ma the, the one, the great. Um, well, we're we're in Samaria, so that's in and of itself uh, of interest. We've gone from Jerusalem. Now we're in Samaria, uh, which is, of course, you all know about the Samaria and its. Uh, how it stands vis-a-vis -vis Jerusalem and kind of normative Judaism at the time, or at least the majority of Judaism at the time. And th there's something I think it can be inter interesting for us to realize, or at least it has been for me in time, that there is, within scripture, there's not a, we encounter this guy who's doing magic, and there's not a, by the way, this isn't really magic. There's like, He's doing magic <laughs> and there is something about it. Like when uh, Moses has to deal with um, all the folks in the uh, court of Pharaoh that he uses to do magic or do these things. Uh, and Simon uh, has this pull on the people yet. He is one of the ones who believes and is baptized both with the men and women. And he himself, even though he's, uh, called the great, uh, he sees these signs and he's impressed. He's amazed. What do you all make of, well, first, what do you all make of Simon? It really jumped out at me this time in verse 10. Uh, they said, this man is the power of God, which is called great. That there's almost like, um, there's a great tradition within, um, not just Christianity, but in others to call different powers or aspects of God's different names. But this, for some reason, this jumped out at me at this time. Hmm. That he is called great because he is that power. Maybe it's just an English translation. I haven't looked at the Greek. Um, 
there's something about Simon. He has some kind of bead on, or he's got uh, a line to some kind of power. I've been reading some recently about how many of these magicians and sorcerers and so on, despite the fact that they were over, you know, generally phony and fake, were nevertheless somewhat open to, I don't want to say the supernatural, I, I want to say something else, but, but op, open to, open, uh, op, open to the idea that there was a greater depth to reality than is immediately perceived. So, so that they, they already had a mindset, a lot of them already had the mindset that was open to, to, to the right. ideas of early questions. Right. The science. There's been actually a lot of scholarship on magic and things at the time. A lot of it probing of Jesus and how he does miracles and how would he relate to some at the time when you have Greeks and others, um, I'm going to butcher the name, but you had gods of healing that at least people thought they, they healed. Asclepius. Um, say that again, Jim. Asclepius. That's the name that I can see in my head, but didn't want to try to pronounce. Uh, and you even have, uh, so it's just this interesting context where even in the Old Testament, you have an understanding that there are powers in the universe. Uh, they stand, of course, under the one God, but they exist and they can be tapped upon or talked to. And you probably shouldn't do that. Well, I'm going to tell you, we obviously should not do that, but the, here is Simon with this. Um, Simon, uh, what the, it's fascinating. And this was a conundrum when I was growing up, because I don't think they knew what to do with this, this split that you have between that they were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy spirit yet. partly because there would always be a conversation with Pentecostals like what because everybody wants to like claim what it means to have received the Holy Spirit um, but being Orthodox it's very hard for me not to kind of be like well duh <laughs> <laughs> there's there's something about the applying of chrism uh, of being being receiving the Holy Spirit that is apostolic and ecclesial They'd been baptized, but as you see in verse 14, Jerusalem, the apostles heard about it, and they say, oh, great, cool. We have another, like, a, there's a satellite of us now out in Samaria. Now they say, we've got to go down so they can receive the Holy Spirit, because you need the apostles to lay hands on in order to give the Holy Spirit. So reading this text now, for me, I, I go, well, obviously this is an ecclesial, you know, now there is, you need apostolic authority. This is, um, in the East, we, we might lose a little bit of this because the priests have the blessing from the bishop to apply holy chrism. Uh, but in the West, uh, this is something that was reserved for the bishop to this day. That is the bishop who applies uh, chrism, which is why confirmation is when it is, um, because there was a gap 
sometimes between baptism and when they were confirmed in the list. So this is obviously apostolic that there is the the reception of the Holy Spirit has to do with the apostolic and ecclesial uh, nature of the church. Um, That is something connected, obviously, to baptism, but is separate from baptism. Uh, That is not about receiving uh, the Holy Spirit in the sense of um, now I can speak in tongues or something like that, which was always the debate, at least when I was growing up in Arkansas. (laughs) (laughs) What does it mean to give the Holy Spirit? Simon, of course, saw that something was going on with the Holy Spirit, and he wants the power. Verse 19, give me this power that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. What do you all think of Simon? <laughs> so, well, this is where the name of the sin, Simony, comes from. Correct. Buying church office. Um, buying an ordination or buying an episcopate uh, that uh, was named for Simon. Um, he's, and he's, has been an offense throughout church history. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it, it, here we have the original example of it. Um, and it's uh, um, definitely wanting that apostolic authority, but uh, certainly in the wrong way. Uh, the, the thing about magic is that it's wanting to exert power. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that if they wanted to be great, then they needed to be servants of all. And Simon isn't interested in being a servant. Simon wants power over other people. And he sees this. It's just as we all have our, our pet sins that we wrestle with all our life, this was Simon's. And even though he was baptized, as it says, and he came to be a believer, he still had that temptation to power. Um, and there was something, I mean, obviously there was something that was visible or discernible in that gift um, of chrismation um, that, there was something that could be sensed um, there at the time. And I've, I've seen after chrismations, I've known of people who have received healings uh, from diseases, um, but it wasn't something necessarily visible at the time, but afterwards uh, when they had seen their physician, uh, something was healed or they had had a recovery from something that uh, they didn't even ask for um, necessarily, uh, but that there was grace that was given in, in chrismation. There was a change. Um, I'm thinking especially about one member, one of our founding members at St. Anne's, uh, Peggy Krieg, who died about 10, 11 years ago, was an absolute sweetheart, but uh, in the beginning, she was the alto section in the choir, but she was so timid in her singing. And she was chrismated Holy Saturday in 99. And I remember that morning when we started Divine Liturgy, suddenly I heard the alto line and I looked up and Peggy was just beaming and there was great joy, but there was a strength in her voice 
And there was a boldness to her singing that was not there an hour before when we started the chrismations um, and that it carried forward. Um, just, uh, but as I say, there, there is something discernible and Simon wanted that. I mean, that was his particular temptation that, that he was prone to was wanting power. And no doubt for other magicians, it was here's some money, tell me your secret or tell me or give me what you have. Um, I, I read somewhere years ago that the devil is crafty. He'll tailor his temptations or his assaults to the culture around. So in our milieu, we're more scientific, technological, materialistic. And so the temptations are going to be much more mundane. They're not going to be as sensational. But if you speak to missionaries in other parts of the world where people do very strongly have a belief in magic, that they will tell you, oh, yeah, there's spiritual manifestations of things. There is power that is wielded and whatever it takes to whatever the enemy can use to uh, intimidate us or to tempt us or, or what have you. Um, and this was a culture that magic was a part of the world. So it's not unusual that the, the apostles would run into something like that. It's also somewhat akin to the young girl that had the spirit um, who told fortunes and you know, tailed after Paul and Barnabas, I think it was, and you know, kept saying these men, uh, when they were proclaiming the gospel and what the book of Acts- yeah, They turned the world upside saying. down, right? Right, right, right. And you know, they cast out the spirit and then her owners are, are ticked off because they've lost income. Um, the real magic. Yeah. So, right, right. <laughs> Once you mess so with money. Down the money, come down the money. <laughs> But there is very much this sense that, um, yes, Jesus won the victory on the cross, but there's um, the power of God and there is the powers and principalities and dominions and whatever things in this world that the apostles are encountering this and they are fighting these in whatever form they take. So why do you think the this story about Simon? Because of course in the early church, I'm sure, just like in the Gospels, right? It says at the end of the Gospel of John, if we actually tried to tell all the stories, mm. why is Simon put here? What is the importance of Simon? You know, I'm I'm thinking back to um, Ananias and Sapphira, as well. That uh, you just it's not once saved, always saved. These are people who have come into the church. Um, they've been baptized and yet the temptation is still real. Don't think that just because you've been baptized, therefore, pardon the adverb, magically everything is fixed and goes away. Um, mm -hmm. That life is discipleship and there is ongoing struggle. Um, and you will have, as in this case, Simon fell back into his old temptations. So uh, why did Simon not, so what, Ananias and Sapphira die. Right. Right. So why did Simon survive? 
And that's a great question. The footnote <laughs> here in uh, I see Glenn going. Yeah. I think one of the important questions, and I was going to mention this and ask you about it, was that he re- I think he recognized his sin and didn't try to hide it. And he asked Peter, pray the, you know, the to the pray to the Lord that I'll be forgiven. Um, and I think that's one of the, the things where the other the other two came in and thought they could hide from God and the apostles. And Simon at least recognized, you know, hey, I've made a mistake. Uh, I need to back up here. <laughs> well, I think you're on. I definitely think you're on to something. There, there was no deceit in Simon. In yeah. fact, it was the opposite. He was really bold. He was just like, yeah. I want that. How, how much? <laughs> what, what do I need to write on the check? <laughs> it reminds me of the naivete in a sense of what we saw in the apostles where Christ would do miracles and, you know, or someone else, they would see someone else preaching in Christ's name and, you know, hey, can we call fire down on them or something like that? Mm-hmm that, you know, there was a naivete in that newness even for them before the Holy Spirit had came upon them, upon them. And I kind of, that was the thing that I saw in this was that it reminded me of the apostles when they were at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. Some of the really ridiculous, silly things they said and did that, you know, years later, they just put their hand on their head. <laughs> Do yep. we have to put this in the gospel? Yeah, exactly. Do we have to admit what we've done? <laughs> and the yep. answer is yes. And I think Simon, in the newness of his of his belief, you know, hopefully that he was saved uh, in in the end result. Well, if it's a bit of a spoiler, in the in the Orthodox Study Bible, the footnote says that um, according to tradition, that that Simon fell away and ultimately became mm-hmm. um, he afterwards returned to his magical arts and was a bitter enemy of the church. Oh, that's sad. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those. Uh, so I, I think what, it, what this underlines is the struggle. Well, I've, we talked about this with Ananias and Sapphira and even in the early, uh, the Luke and emphasis on money that keeps coming up. Um, and Simon then shows another aspect of this. And I think he shows how, for Luke, it shows the ways in which the kingdom of God does not operate like the world. And that there's not, you. there's a logic that's behind Simon's thinking that is not like cross logic. It is logic of how do I become, keep on being the great right? Like, how do I, uh, I see this thing, I want it. So I'm going to buy it and consume it. And then I'll be able to do this thing too. Uh, which is not, I mean, go back to, uh, how is Stephen the greatest? How does his face shine like Moses? How does he, the lamentation and the, is because he was a servant because he, and this, or Barnabas, the, you have these other image uh, images or icons of the early church that are very specifically put there to show this is what kingdom values are like. This is what it means to be a Christian. And Simon, um, his apparently he um, his heart is not right before God. This is what Peter says, and 
that he's and I think Peter here the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. I get the bond of iniquity. What do you all think of the gall of bitterness? First, I'd have to ask to be completely honest about my ignorance. Gall. Bile. Bile. Oh. Like gallbladder holds bile uh, to help you digest. Very humorous of you, Erica. Uh, Yeah, a little sanguine too. (laughs) (laughs) Once you have your gallbladder out, you feel so much better. Oh yes, you do. (laughs) Anyone who's in the club knows. <laughs> uh, tw- that's uh, my favorite organ that I've ever lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so the I, there's something this bitterness that he sees in his heart that it doesn't seem to come through in the language, but there's obviously bitterness. I think of like almost being scorned, or like why can't I be special and make it? But he hasn't. That's not his what he's supposed to be doing. He's not going to be the great anymore. Uh, he's going to be uh, like everybody. He's baptized, chrismated, but he's going to have to find a different way to be great that's not the path of money or control um, that is in the scriptures what magic stands for. This kind of short-circuiting God and being able to control things. That's my understanding of what how magic is typically seen in scripture as. So it's, it's kind of almost the apotheosis of pride um, because you want, it makes sense. Who doesn't want the world is, seems kind of out of control. Who, who wouldn't want that? I, I mean, yeah, that'd be great. I want to make things happen the way I want them. Yeah. Be great. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know if y'all have ever read any of the novels of Charles Williams. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, one of his novels, the, the villain is Simon Magus. Uh, it's set in modern day England, but uh, Simon has somehow survived over the centuries. And he's in the book as a cult leader um, who is trying to break down the walls between the living and the dead so that he could try to take control over, um, which of course is not for human beings to do. Um, and he does come to his destruction at the end of that book. There's another one of Williams's novels though that deals with the question, what if human beings had omnipotence? What if you could will something to happen and make it happen? And what everyone in that book encounters who uses this power because anyone could, um, they find that omnipotence without omniscience, they cause situations, they, they don't understand what the outcomes of their actions would be. And when they force their will on the universe, they often uh, run into consequences they don't like or one or two are even destroyed. Isn't that one of the okay. themes of the end of the Avengers series too, with Iron Man and uh, Captain America kind of arguing? I haven't seen about the this. movies. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen them. But the one character in that book who um, is rightly related is the one who refuses to exert her will, but always, when confronted with the temptation to use this power, just somehow recognizes. She's not overtly Christian, but she recognizes there is something here that needs to be honored and submitted to. And her 
reaction is thy will be done, not mine. Uh, so this is actually a good segue for the rest of the chapter. Ah. Because you get Simon, who I is... Say that's, a great, that's a great parable for our times. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Oh, certainly. I can, after, after the show, I can put it in the notes. <laughs> a reference to the book. <laughs> to Charles Williams. Uh, we have Simon as this icon of um, pride and desire to build his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And now we encounter uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And I never really thought about this diptych that's being created until right now. Uh, you have a man of power. So let's actually read first. Who would like to read 26 to the end of the chapter? I can do it. All right, read. Are you going to be using the, the screen? What's that? Yeah, I can see. Great. But an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he rose and went, and behold, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a minister of the Candace, queen of the, of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading, to the, prof reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him read Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture which he was reading was this, As a sheep led to the slaughter, or a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, who can describe his generation, for his life is taken up from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, pray, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they went down, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passed on, and passing on, he preached the gospel to all the towns till he came to Caesarea. So we have the Ethiopian eunuch, a man of in charge of things, the treasurer of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, he's obviously of some kind of position and authority. Uh, he's also entrusted. Um, but there's a fascinating aspect, I think, uh, besides the historical reality of being a eunuch, but there's something about being a eunuch that I think is kind of iconic with him too, is that there's, an authority and power that he has, but that he doesn't have by being a eunuch. Um, that there's a humility that we find in the, the eunuch that we did not find in Simon the Great, uh, as they called him in Samaria. Uh, and he's obviously, I think we can connect the dots to see 
if he came to Jerusalem to worship, then he is a part of Jewish diaspora on some level. He must be some kind of, um, of the believers who maybe he's a convert or maybe he's even um, Jews who existed in Ethiopia and lived there. Um, but he's obviously uh, a learned man. And what John Chrysostom picks up about the eunuch is his, his um, studiousness. He's riding in a chariot. This has never really leaped out to me. He's in a chariot, but he's reading the prophet Isaiah. That doesn't mean he has his iPad uh, or something reading Isaiah. That, that means he's got a scroll. So he's like bouncing around on a chariot reading a scroll. Chrysostom picks this up. He's just like, this guy is really interested in, <laughs> in scripture because he's going to read a, a, you know, as he's in his chariot, he's got the prophet Isaiah. And the way that he asks this and in his humility to say, like, uh, which is probably not what he's used to in his job. Because uh, he'd have to be, you know, somebody who's telling people, like, this is how we're going to spend the money. <laughs> this is, you know, who keeps the books. Uh, and he's telling this man uh, who runs up to him. And Chrysostom, I don't really know where Chrysostom picks this up. But he talks about how Philip would have not been dressed really well. And then suddenly this guy's coming up to his chariot and saying, you know, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> and the eunuch says... Why? How can I unless someone guides me? Like this humility that the Ethiopian eunuch, this guy is going to run up to him and say, "Do you know what you're reading?" And he says, "Why? Unless somebody tells me what what I'm reading, I don't know." Um, so he brings Philip, and of course, they're reading from Isaiah, uh, from the servant passages, and the, towards the end of Isaiah, uh, this is actually what we read at the Proskomidee as we're preparing the lamb. Uh, and the eunuch uh, doesn't understand what the text is about. And of course, then Philip opens his mouth and tells him, teaches him uh, like Jesus did to Luke and Cleopas from all of the scriptures. Obviously in teaching him about all of this, uh, he mentions he, how you enter the church, what it means to be a part of the kingdom. To, and, so when the eunuch sees water, uh, he's, you know, so what's stopping me from being baptized? And then he's baptized. Uh, are there any aspects here about the Ethiopian eunuch or Philip that jump out to you or themes or things that you would like to share about it? I find it interesting that this is uh, kind of like right after Simon the Great, uh, just kind of the opposite ends of, of like massive pride and great humility, uh, just kind of uh, kind of almost the exemplars of, of both. Yeah. Why? So what? So what would an Ethiopian mean biblically? What do you all think of when you think of an Ethiopian? A queen of the Ethiopians? Yeah, I think of Sheba. I think of that direction as well. Yeah, and, and that uh, and it was actually quite Jewish. 
So, you know, I might mention, by the way, we need to be careful with the image. Chariots could be quite large and could hold more than one person. Yes. You know, we always think of, when we think of chariots, we always think of the racing chariots and Ben-Hur or the battle chariots, you know. Well, <laughs> this is like a pontoon boat chariot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It would look more like a pontoon. Stagecoach. Yeah. He, he would have a, yeah, closer to a stagecoach. So that would be open, more like a bathtub, you know, but with a, a, with a slave driving. Right. And with him in the back. And, and, and with room for Philip to get in and sit next to him for the two of them to look at the scroll while the slave is driving the horses. Right. But no shock absorbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or likely not. Yeah, exactly. I kind of see him as an, a humility, but also wisdom. To me, when I think about Queen, that he had this position that he has, uh, I think of Queen of Sheba and Solomon, and I think of wisdom, and that he comes from that place. So there's wisdom uh, here with the Ethiopian eunuch that we did not find with uh, Simon the Magician. Hmm. He is coming out of the tradition. Yes. He is coming, he's coming out of the Jewish tradition. Simon is coming, coming out of paganism. Right. But, yeah. but would have known about Judaism, right? Because he would have been in Samaria. So there, the, that's not kind of synchronistic Judaism that would have been the Samaritan religion. But uh, one wonders how much time he spent reading Isaiah or the prophets. That's fair. It's fascinating that he's reading Isaiah of all the prophets. Um, I mean, obvious divine providence here that he would be reading this particular section uh, and this particular part of Isaiah itself. Um, I mean, what better spot in scripture in some ways? I mean, there's plenty of spots in the Old Testament, but this just allows you to go right to it. <laughs> you get to tell the whole story and the climax <laughs> uh, very easily from here. What do you all make of um, Philip being snatched away? I'm trying to remember how far away that was because apparently it was a significant distance. Yeah, I didn't look that up. There's a lot, part of the challenge for me is how, there's a lot of Caesareas too. Yeah. I guess this is Caesarea yeah. on the, uh, the water, right? Yeah, Azotus. So that may help narrow it down. That's true. Wherever that is. But, uh, yeah, I don't have anything in the footnotes here about how far, but I'm trying to remember, I think that was a a bit of a distance. It's uh, it sounds a bit like Thomas being brought to at the the death of the Theotokos and is brought um, by the Spirit um, to I guess it'd be Ephesus, um, and he was late. <laughs> <laughs> so Azotos, you know what?
See, join. It's backwards, isn't it? They're on the on the coast, right? Sorry, my finger. Right, uh, right there. Yeah, it's right <laughs> orientation here. Yep, right there, and then the road to Gaza is down here. So a pretty good distance, not like massive, but still. So what? What's why? Why is he caught up? What's the point of this? Why does it need to mention that? Is the is there a reason, or is it just that's what happened? And okay, that's a good question. Because Jesus can have Philip teleport when he wants him to, or. <laughs> This is some said something to the effect of uh, that would be a sign of wonder for the uh, the eunuch to ponder upon. Yes, he does. He also uh, mentions Habakkuk from this will tie into last week's uh, talk mm -hmm. too, because if you've never read the Greek Daniel, you don't know that Habakkuk uh, was taken up by his hair mm -hmm. uh, by an angel and brought a meal for Daniel while he's in the lion's den. Bet you didn't know that if you didn't know about. So, uh, actually, hold on a second. <laughs> Is he going to bring us a meal? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see anyone grabbing by his hair. <laughs> Some of us don't have to worry about that. Yeah. yeah. So, this is an icon that a friend of mine did for me for the prophet Daniel. And you can see... Yes. Habakkuk being. Ah, poor Habakkuk. <laughs> I specifically, you can see the hand. Can you see the hand on his head? Yep. Yeah. I specifically wanted this, and <laughs> I mean, he wanted to do it too, but I, I just love the story. It's like, and Habakkuk basically gets his pulled by his hair and dropped from where he was to give Daniel a meal. So I look at it as kind of a Eucharistic reference of God in the midst of trouble uh, and temptation, et cetera, still provide, you know, provides the meal, prophetic meal. Um, this, uh, so Chrysostom references Daniel and Ezek uh, Habakkuk and um, Ezekiel as both being prophets who were kind of taken up by the Lord and transported it to a different place. Then um, there's Elijah. Yes. A little bit more. He had a, a big, more fanfare in his. Uh, True. He had a fancier he a, chariot. He was in a chariot. <laughs> and it was on fire. Yes. <laughs> and it was on fire. <laughs> yep. And the fire was on fire. And yeah. How many did the chariot see? <laughs> so I was going to say knives. Probably one, right? Mm. Okay, you got me there. <laughs> but I the, on this current reading, what strikes me is, is when I put it in the context of what you were saying before, and I don't know if it's relevant or not, the eunuch has been baptized, but he has not yet been cremated. Yeah. I, I, I and Maybe the point of this was to keep him from being chrismated for some reason. <laughs> well, it's so it's fascinating too about these like the way that Acts works is we get these little like windows into things. But for example, like Simon, you walk away and you're like, okay, I don't want to be like Simon. I'm glad he 
but then tradition says such and such. I don't, I, from the top of my head, I don't remember. What is the, does the study Bible have a footnote about what tradition says about the Ethiopian eunuch? That's that I'm looking up to see, but I mean, Philip was one of the apostles. So it's hard to make an argument from, from silence. I mean, just because it doesn't explicitly say that Philip laid hands on him and, and prayed for him to receive the Holy Spirit. Doesn't well, mean that Philip was a deacon. Didn't. Oh, he was, Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Forgive me. You're right. So then that would have needed to be completed with, you know, and in order to do that, and presumably Philip would have um, included that in the instruction, uh, the eunuch would have needed to present himself to one of the apostles for chrismation. Yeah. Or Philip would need to get back and say, hey, not only Samaria, we need to send folks down to Ethiopia because it's happening down there as well. And we have this particular eunuch in the, the court of the Candace that um, <laughs> needs a chrismation. Yep. Yeah. And this is why, this is where scripture operates, of course, <laughs> like it would be lovely if we knew all the facts about everything, right? Yeah. So we can fill in all of our wondering and questing, but that's, it operates in an iconic manner in a way that doesn't answer all of our questions, but it's presented to us kind of in the way, you know, obviously the way that we, we generally come to the gospels, but then we come to a text like this and we, a history text, which is a different kind. Well, in some ways, even Luke, Luke was still the author of it. um, To be able to contemplate what, how can I be like the Ethiopian eunuch? What is about the humility? One, I think of being able, uh, he gives us an example of that we need guidance from the church and how we read scripture. Otherwise we're not really going to understand what scripture means. Um, This is a perfect point where you come to a text and you wonder about it and you need guidance. So it's a good thing to ask for help. Um, I also think Philip in being this time too, what popped out at me and something that Chrysostom actually intimates, it starts off with an angel of the Lord. And I always, for whatever reason, tend to gloss over when there's angels. It's kind of like, and there's an angel of the Lord, you know, hody hum hum, da 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 there was an angel (laughs) who said to Philip, go do this thing. Then verse 29, it's no longer an angel. Now it's a spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Chrysostom talks about how, um, and I don't think he's making a comment on Philip as much as the difference is an angel. The Lord can appear to anybody, even kind of fleshly people, but the spirit is one who speaks within the heart. So this is my way of talking about how Chrysostom was making the difference. This is an exact quote from Chrysostom. The spirit speaks to, you know, spiritual people. So Philip, of course, uh, is one of those like Stephen, like Barnabas, like Peter, uh, that has a heart that is open. He's already done exactly what the angel told him to do. And now the spirit can speak to him to tell him to go, and join himself to this chariot. I also think that this underlines for us 
divine providence and how this act, how the church is growing. It's not just uh, guys going around talking about it. There is uh, God's specific care and orchestrating the spread of the gospel through angelic administrations and through the Holy Spirit, uh, such that that might even be part of the reason the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip, because mission accomplished. Now, you know, the Spirit comes, gets him, and take, like, now you've got another mission. Uh, if you choose to accept it, which he does. Uh, but I, I think that that might be part of the reason for this being caught up, because he's part of this prophetic movement, uh, serving with the kingdom, what God wills for the early church. Could it not also be a sign to the eunuch? Absolutely. I mean, you put yourself in the eunuch's place. Now he's left in a state of wonder immediately after his baptism. I think that's what you said earlier, Erica. Yeah, Chrysostom yeah. says yeah. that. Chrysostom. Oh, he said it even earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I was just quoting him, you know. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Good ideas came from him. <laughs> I'm sorry. David, you were just channeling Chrysostom over the millennia. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no, also, that's a great. Go ahead. Just there's also uh kind of uh I'm seeing kind of echoes of uh Christ after walking with Luke and Cleophas on the road to Emmaus, uh after they finally recognize him that he mm. kind of uh yeah. goes away too. Yeah. Or like in uh end of Gospel of John with the women in the garden where He's like, my time, like, it would be great, but my purpose here is not to stay here for you to be, like, I've got to go. No tangere. Yep. Forgive me, I just thought, what would Jesus do? <laughs> he would disappear. <laughs> he would just disappear, okay. So, and I think this, again, underlines a theme that I've been trying to, to follow, trace through the book of Acts is exactly the Christocentric um, life of the church that mm. we Christ's ministry is continued exactly through us as his prophets, Kings um, and priests. So we have uh, that's exactly what, why um, Simon is so off because he thinks that he can through money achieve uh, specific kind of office within the church and kind of give the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is actually occurring to me that this text, uh, this whole chapter is very much about the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and what it means to have the Holy Spirit, uh, to be prompted by the Holy Spirit. Um, and this, I think, is going to become very important uh, as we... Uh, have Saul have his experience that you're going to have Christ uh, coming to him and he needs himself to be baptized. He has to submit himself to the church. And even later in Paul's ministry where he goes out to Arabia for a long time. And then when he comes back, he has to go and join himself to Jerusalem. This is me putting Acts and Galatians together again, but um mm -hmm. This, 
the ecclesial and the spirit are not opposed to each other. They operate uh, hand in hand uh, because they are there for the furtherance of the kingdom and it's how God arranged things. Um, and there's very specific ways in which the kingdom or the church is not supposed to act. So trying to buy an office or buy access to the Holy Spirit is, is counter to everything uh, that we understand about what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Any other aspects or themes from here? Next week we'll go to, I think we've hit a good spot where we can do a chapter in an, an hour or so. So I, th- I think we're, we're doing all right. I think if we tried to do more, we would be missing some good nuggets uh, because we would just be like two thirty thousand feet above the land. Reed is unmuted. Yes, Reed. <laughs> yes, Chrysostom or Chrysostom, <laughs> since that is your saying. Well, I, I had a couple of thoughts. Um, one, uh, when uh, Peter says to Simon about, uh, you know, where is it? It's, I'll, I'll go up for you. There it is. Your, your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And um, that, to my mind, almost rhymes with, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Um, it's like, you know, what you can acquire by your efforts and by what you own, um, that doesn't work here. That what you need is a gift. And that's the only way to, to have it is as a gift. And um, it strikes me that later in Acts, we will see the Apostle Paul coming to, he's on his way to Ephesus and comes across some believers who had heard the baptism of John, but hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. And um, then Paul explains things more thoroughly to them and baptizes them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And I'm thinking, well, after uh, Peter and John had to come down for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit, that really says, sort of puts the stamp on Paul's apostolic ministry, which evidently was somewhat questioned at the time, you know, during his own lifetime. Yes, I think um, you were talking especially about the money you can't buy and I don't know if I mentioned this about the unit. I mean, he's the finance minister, right? Like he's the one in charge of the treasury. So you have this money theme going on with him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got access and he's used to money, but he doesn't think in those terms. Right. Well, it's like you would think he would be the one who would think about money, but he's but not, not thinking money. about money. <laughs> it's not his money though. He's a steward. Right. Well, and that maybe, that might actually be more that as a position of steward, he knows actually that that's not how things work. Mm. The Ananias and Sapphira were not steward. They, they were not treating themselves as stewards of God's gifts. They thought that they could do what they want with God's gift. That it was theirs. That it was theirs. And they could, they could lie about what needs to actually be given to the Lord. Mm. Even though, I mean, it's all God's. Because you don't have that attitude, then that's a hard one to to have. <laughs> and it also strikes. Of course, what I thought. Of, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say. It also strikes me that we sort of see 
the gospel expanding in these concentric circles, you know, first to the Samaritans who were despised and, you know, sort of had their half-breed version of Judaism, but also eunuchs under the law of Moses yes. were somewhat restricted in their access to God that, you know, no one who was a eunuch and from the descendants of Aaron could serve as a priest. And uh, I think there may have been other restrictions. I don't remember the details now. So it's striking that, you know, it's Samaritans and a eunuch who are the ones to whom the gospel comes here. Which is then the later themes of when Peter needs that vision of that all of uh, the creation is now accessed to be eaten, that the, so these boundaries, the spirit is leading these boundaries to be uh reconfigured in Christ. We're working our way toward the Gentiles here. Yes. <laughs> Slowly, but steadily. Excellent. David, were you, what was your comment? Well, my comment's really worthless. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. What well, was sure, it? Sure it was. Well, when I was looking at the exchange with Simon over the money, you know, mm -hmm. of course, what I thought of was can't buy me love, but... Mm. <laughs> Well, that wasn't a worthless comment, David. <laughs> Sorry. There's, there's a sermon title there. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you're a Presbyterian, yeah. Absolutely. I was thinking of a story that Father Stephen told some years back. A, a priest had told him about... Um, this priest had been approached by an Eastern European woman who wanted her baby baptized and the priest had agreed to do it. And she asked how much, and you know, he didn't want to put a price, but you know, she insisted and uh, he realized, well, okay, it's a cultural thing of the, you yeah, give yep. the priest money for. So he baptizes the infant. And then when he's turned his back to the font, he hears splashing going on behind him. And the woman is baptizing her other children herself. Her reasoning was, she wanted to know how much she wanted for the baptism. Her reasoning was, okay, since I gave him the money, he's now magicked the water. I've got the real thing. So now I'll baptize I my other children. For the price of one, right? <laughs> and, and that's when he stopped her and said, look, no, it's not about money and it's not about magic. And I will baptize your children, but... You know, stop. <laughs> wow. So uh, magical thinking is always a challenge because idolatry is always a challenge and not fully understanding what I think sacraments, how it works. Uh, even me kind of saying works, I think is like, there's something that is obviously going on that God does. Uh, but it's not magic. It is this is a different? It's a different thing. It's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> That's very enlightening. I, I feel like I've learned a lot with that. <laughs> you know, a big difference is whose will is involved. Is it right. God's will or is it our own? And are we in, in willing what? to submit our will to His will? In the sacrament, David. Oh, in the sacrament. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah. Christ is the, the high priest. It is Christ who baptizes, Christ who marries, Christ who 
is the offerer and offered. And that's why um, when the priest, um, when, when sacraments are being administered, the priest uses passive voice when saying, the servant of God so-and-so is baptized, not I baptize, because Father Daniel is not doing it. It is Christ who does it, but the words are in passive voice. It is you're receiving that, or the servant of God receives the body and blood of Christ, but it's not, I give you the body and blood of Christ. The, right. the, the priest is not speaking in first person. Right. I've actually found that whole the baptism to be useful, very useful, in talking to Protestant Christians who don't understand what the difference is between the, what I like to call the ancient churches, the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Oriental, and, and the modern Protestant churches. Is, you know, so I'll say at some point, I, I will often say, well, you know, do you baptize infants? No, we wait until they're adults so they know what they're doing. <laughs> and, I, and I will, well, that's, that is the response. That's yeah. exactly why my grandchildren despite my daughter, my grandchildren, despite my daughter's wishes, were not baptized because she is, I mean, yeah, we're not baptized because she's married to a Baptist. Okay. And they have to be the age of reason. But I find that's a very useful. I don't think I've met, I don't think I've got there yet. Age of reason. But, 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 but uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, but I'm, my point, my point is that 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 is a very useful way to draw the distinction and the distinction being you think when you are when 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 things are happening in church you are doing something we think that when things are happening in church god is doing something you okay. think baptism is something that we do we believe baptism is something that God does. And that's it's even in the language of Baptist, right? Like that it mm -hmm. is an outward, that it's a sign that you've already been saved, but it's something that you can or can't do. At least that's my experience with Baptists. And I know as soon as yeah. I start to say a Baptist say, there can be a thousand like, but, but, but. Well, guys, that's because there's, there's 30,000 denominations, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but don't, don't you agree? I think that's, I think that really points out a very vital distinction between what hmm. you think is happening on Sunday morning. Who's well, even doing, uh, Martin, Luther's, Martin Luther's argument for pedo-baptism against um, Anabaptists and those who argued that you needed to reach the age of reason, Martin Luther said no, because then you're making the grace of God contingent on the work of understanding. Exactly. And Luther was very allergic to the idea of our work um, being something that, that without it, God's grace can't act. Um, he's, being the good Augustinian monk that he was. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but his contention was, no, we baptize infants because adults can't understand it. And even if you do understand, it's not your understanding that makes the grace of God effective. God's grace is effective because it is God's grace. Otherwise, once I learn more about God do I need to be baptized again? Because now I've come to a greater depth of yeah. understanding or, but well, yes. Well, we should actually, probably... actually, that's to your joke earlier. Father, it's like, 
you never reach the age of reason. You never reach the age where you understand. If you think you've reached the age where you understand what's going on in baptism, you are way off track. Yeah. And you really have no comprehension of what's going on, right? Well, thank you, everyone. I'm glad to see some new faces here tonight. Hopefully this was something you would like to do again. <laughs> uh, but we tried to have a good discussion and even a good time. Whoa, Reed, you put up a thumbs up. I know, that's awesome. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> Reed is like, I have no idea how I did that. <laughs> hey, how, oh, how that? Thumbs up. Okay, now. <laughs> how much do you well, want to tell me how to do that? <laughs> well, I'm going to stop uh, the recording now so that folks at home are not. Well, that, I guess they oh, oh look, I just found the trim beard function. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. No. <laughs>